Uh, as we get into looking at uh, Ephesians again, we're reminded that uh, Paul was writing to these Christians that were just learning to work it out where God had placed them. That was the deal. Get it to work where you are, where God's placed you, uh, maybe nine to five or probably eight to six, where God's placed you, where God's placed you in the evenings, where God's happened to place you in terms of where you live. Uh, and these people were learning to work it out, learning that ordinary Christians can make an extraordinary difference because the Jesus life that's in you is absolutely, totally uh, uh, able to be replicated in someone else because of you. We don't need anyone or anything else to pass the Jesus life on. Jesus said to the group of 12 guys who had nothing but just themselves, go and pass this on. Go and live it out and teach them also to obey everything that I've taught you. And so this great movement began that has been going on now for uh, 2,000 years or so. So I hope you've got your Bibles open in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to get into some of the verses that are in there in just a moment as we think about the way these people uh, lived and what Paul understood they needed to know and, and get straight. So uh, Ephesians chapter 3, the first uh, 10 verses, first 13 verses or so, is Paul's example of how he was called by God to, to reach the Gentiles, how it was his uh, uh, mission, and how the church was given exactly the same task. He, he lands the whole thing in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 3, that his intent, that God's intent was that now, this time now, that through the church, and remember for church it wasn't church like this, they didn't have church like this yet, there wasn't an organisational structure in the way that we understand it, this was just groups of people meeting in whatever way they were able to meet, this was a a living, organic set of relationships. Uh, uh, His intent was now through the church, through these Christians that were getting it, through these Christians that were living it, through these Christians that that that, that were trying to replicate, to reproduce the Jesus life in others that the manifold wisdom of God, the mystery that is of the gospel, should be made known to uh, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. In other words, that the church should be so central, so much part of God's plan, that even the spiritual world, both demonic and angelic, need to wake up and be aware of what God's doing. That God was doing something so profound that the spiritual as well as the physical world would be impacted in what was going on. And he roots that reality right in the middle of a group of people called church. We are central to God's plan. And so the question that challenges us again as we come to these words is, do we live up? to that calling? Do we live up to that calling wherever God has placed us? If I'm, if I am where I am, central to God's plan, then how should I respond to that where I am? And of course the barometer is Jesus all of the time. What would Jesus do if he was where I am? I'm called to be the, the body of Christ, the living representative of Christ where I am. So what kind of things would Jesus do if he was where I am? How would Jesus, uh, what would Jesus do or how would he behave if he lived in 
your street. Sorry about the lack of a capital letter on the second one. What would Jesus do if he had your job? What would he do? What time would he get in? How would he relate? Where would he be? Would he be uh, in, in the group of people that you work with? Where, where would he be positioned? What might you expect if you were to look in and watch Jesus doing your job? What would Jesus do if he was a member of your club, whatever that might be? Tennis club, bowls club, member of your society, whatever it might be that you spend your time... What would it be just to look in and to see Jesus in your place? What would you expect to see if you were able to observe that? Kind of not too far away, but to observe it quite close at hand. Just share with your neighbour just for a moment what strikes you. Any of those questions. If you'd just rather sit and reflect, that's perfectly fine. I just encourage you to share. If we can't share a Jesus stuff in here, it's really hard to share it out there. So we're trying to create a culture where we can share and encourage one another. What's the question that kind of grabs you? You know, if Jesus was your neighbour, what would you expect? from him as your neighbour. If he lived in your house, what, what might the impact be in the street? How would it work? Go. What is he asking of me if I am his hands and his feet? So Paul, convinced that ordinary Christians living out this new extraordinary life at the centre of God's plan, falls on his knees to pray. For this reason, uh, he says, I, I fall, I get on my knees and I begin to pray. Paul respond, Paul's response was prayer. For, for this reason, because the mystery of God is in us and because we take that mystery out to those places where we live and move and have our being, he falls on his knees and he begins to pray for these group of Christians that are now spread out right over a, a whole region called Asia Minor, that they might be, as we'll see, the people God longs for them to be. It's interesting, isn't it, that he falls on his uh, Knees. I, I kneel before the Father. What's your normal posture for prayer? I don't know what, what kind of really suits you, whether, whether it's uh, walking uh, is your natural posture for praying, whether it's uh, doing the ironing is a natural posture for praying, whether it's particular prompts during the day like driving or uh, simply sitting down and having uh, a focused time that's quiet, depending on your personality and your rhythm of life. It'll be different things for all of us. The normal posture for praying in, in Paul's culture, Paul's Jewish culture, would have been to stand to pray. Always concentrates the mind if you have to stand uh, and pray. But at key moments... When the chips were down, or they felt their backs were against the wall, or they were particularly desperate, we'd read of people kneeling, even lying prostrate, to pray. People like Ezra and Daniel, or Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, or Stephen before his martyrdom. So what's your posture when you're desperate? What does desperate praying look like for you? You have your ordinary praying, your, your daily rhythm of life, your walking, sleeping kind of praying. What's your posture when you're desperate? You're really longing for God to break through. Paul falls on his knees to pray. Desperate that these believers scattered across this region would rise up 
and be all that's in God's heart for them to be. Are we that desperate, as Paul was, to see each one of us live up to our callings where we are, where he's placed us? And notice Paul prays to the Father. Wonderfully important. Paul prays to the Father. So important because it helps us understand so much about God. When we did our series on prayer uh, last year, the year before, and we spent just a few uh, a, a few services at the beginning of that whole series, just looking at what it meant for us to be able to call God Father. When you pray, say, "Our Father." And what's God saying about Himself? That He should reveal Himself to us as Father. And there's much to unpack. But in this particular context, and following on from what Claire said some moments ago, there's also another challenge. If God invites us to know him and relate to him as father, then it expresses something about how we are to be. Back to this family word again. You see, God could have invited us to relate to him uh, as a kind of chief executive in which we, we should do well to organize ourselves. And that's a good thing to do too. But what does it mean, taking it perhaps one step deeper and further, that God invites us to relate to him as father and therefore invites us to be family together? What Claire said a couple of weeks ago uh, is so important, but equally I realize is so hard. It's a challenging thing. It's so hard because our marriages often, or our families are not what we want them to be. In fact, some of us perhaps feel this morning we don't even have a family at all. And so even, even using the word and the language is a, is a really painful thing to begin to think about. It's really hard, but we've got to fix it as the people of God. And we need to fix it because in the New Testament, the primary way the gospel grew was through extended families. It was through a recognition that people would have those relationships that would be deep enough, that would be interconnected enough to carry the weight of the gospel. And that's how almost all of the evangelism, apart from some key moments, took place in the New Testament. The trouble that we have is that marriage and family is statistically as difficult for us as it is for people outside the church. Statistically, a Christian marriage is no more secure than any other marriage. I know as many Christians who wish they weren't married as I know Christians who really wish they were. It's a really difficult and painful area for us. Furthermore, many Christians find themselves with spouses that don't share their faith. So their marriage, their home and their family is unable together to live out gospel. And that challenges and creates pain and conflict at all kinds of levels. And we see how painful that is as we share our lives together. People who are single, for whatever reason they're single, whether they haven't been married at all, have been married and now are no longer married, feel so isolated and alone when we talk about family because instinctively we think about a nuclear family and it seems like everyone is in a nuclear family and we're the only ones excluded from it. So all of this is really hard. And because it's really hard, it's easy for us to skirt around the edges of it, to keep our relationships at arm's length at a safe enough distance. 
And we pay lip service, if we're not careful, just corporately, to, to being family, because we don't have a strong enough base from which to reach out and invite others in. And if we don't have a strong base from which we can reach out and invite others in, then our sense of loneliness and our sense of isolation just uh, uh, can so easily get perpetuated. And what does this do? All of this paralyzes the spread of the gospel. All of this totally diminishes our, our impact in our communities and in our neighborhoods. And, and it, it struck me that, that the enemy has, has run amok in the church. I don't mean our church particularly, just in the church. By attacking us in this area of our marriages and our family, he's almost paralyzed us to being effective. And, and it's, I'm seeing that clearer than perhaps I've ever seen that before. Uh, we need to fix it as a church. And it's eminently fixable because Jesus forgives and Jesus heals and Jesus restores and Jesus turns situations around. But because the church doesn't exist outside of us, the church, whoever they are, can't fix it. The only people that can fix it is you and me. And we all have a limited relational capacity. I can't possibly, and neither can you, relate to everyone here as family at that kind of level. That's just not possible. We're not capable of that as human beings, not least in terms of, uh, of time and energy. So we relate at a certain level here on a Sunday. Uh, you, you can talk to me here every week, and many of you do, and delighted, and always here till the very last person to leave. And you can chat away, but at that level, our relationship won't get much deeper. And if that's true of all the people that we relate to here, that, then our relationships uh, remain at a particular, a particular uh, uh, level. Then we look at Jesus, who, who, who built family with 12 guys. So, so let's move away from the kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, defining family in perhaps the way that we've always thought of the 2.4 kids, or is it 1.9 now? And we've all seen the 1.9 kid, the 0.9 kid. Uh, let's move away from that for a moment and see that Jesus invited 12 guys uh, and he treated them like family. They lived with him, they shared with him, they did life together. There was, there was little that those guys probably uh, didn't share one with another as they spent day and night together. So, so Jesus recognized that his capacity to model this was limited. And we need to recognize that our capacity for it is limited, but we do have a capacity for it. Because he said to those 12 ordinary guys that were fishermen and tax collectors and, and, and dropouts and all kinds of different groups of people, he said to those 12 at the end, now you go and do the same. You go and make disciples. And the only model they had for making disciples was to gather a group of people around them and share life together. That was the only model Jesus had given them. And so we all have a capacity to do this. At least Jesus thinks so. Jesus believes in us even if we don't. And that's hugely encouraging. And so we can choose within our sphere of influence, within our reach of relationships, to build family. Amazing mums and dads yesterday morning was, was creating family together. Sigate family community, the clues in the name, was creating family uh, in, in the way that they share and do life together, and, and so on. And we can replicate that out right throughout our community. Wouldn't it be fantastic to create a community where everybody really senses that they belong? And belonging is so much deeper than feeling like someone noticed you were here. Although that's really important too. 
But the prize we're after is so much deeper than that. It's a, it's a, a set of connected relationships that both support and challenge that enable us to live out this gospel life that Jesus is calling us to. Imagine Christian marriages and Christian homes, strong and vibrant, so that they can invite others in to be sustained and nurtured by that hub of relationships. Imagine those yet to marry, or who are no longer married, knowing that they belong to a set of key, stable relationships from which they can go out and from which they can return. A set of relationships that keeps them anchored and relationally fulfilled. Imagine a community where at a much deeper level, everyone knows that they belong. We can do that. That's Jesus' design for us. That's his desire for us. That's his belief for us. And so Paul prays to the Father. So maybe some questions to think about in that regard. How can we make our, our small groups more like family? That's, that's not a hard thing to do, I'm sure. Simple things that could make a big difference. How can we make our, our teams You know, if you're serving in some way in this church, you'll be part of a team of one kind or another. How can we make that team more like family? If uh, 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 we're part of a group or an organization, how can we make that more like family? That family is the value, the uh, atmosphere, the soil, sorry to mix all my metaphors, Penny, just to keep you guessing, uh, uh, in in which we can grow together. This is really, really hard. But the prize is huge. And I think the devil has very cunningly undermined our marriages, our families, our sense of well-being in that whole area, that it's easy for us to become paralyzed. Paul prays to the Father because we are to be family. And it says, uh, uh, sorry, here we go, God sets the lonely. Where is it? God sets the lonely uh, in families. He leads forth the prisoners, relational prisoners maybe, with singing. The rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. A beautiful image of, what, of how God is calling us into a place of uh, belonging. So how do we pray? How do we uh, join with Paul? What did he pray for? What were the things on, on his heart, on, on his agenda as he longed for these Christians? These households of believers all over the place to to move more fully into what God had for them. Well, he prayed firstly that they would be strengthened. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. This is verse 16. In your inner being. Strengthened. It's a very kind of emotive, uh, uh, action-orientated word. It's kind of the idea of being goaded into action. You know, if you kind of, kind of wind up a wind-up toy. Anyone remember a wind-up toy? And you kind of wind it up, and there's that pent-up potential in the wind-up toy. As soon as you let it go, there's something inevitable that's going to happen. You're all looking at me like I'm talking about something that you have no experience of whatsoever. But actually, that's not unusual. Uh, so wind up the it pent up. Uh, and Paul's praying that these, these Christians would be so strengthened, so wound up in the spirit, that all you have to do is let them go. 
And they can't help but release the Jesus life that's in them, their innate potential. How wound up are we ready to go? Because another big tactic of the enemy is to nudge us into the idea that it's all a bit too much. Have you ever felt this is all a bit too much? There's no one here who hasn't felt multiple times each day as they begin to understand the calling. This is all too much. And so Paul prays for these Christians like us that go, this is way too much. Can't we just settle back to going to work, watching the telly, having a roast on Sunday and coming to church? Can we do that? And he's saying, I'm praying that they'll be strengthened, they'll be so wound up that they can't help, they have to release that strength, that inbuilt spiritual potential, and the only way they can do that is to go out and and live it. You see, at every point of the Christian life, it's easier not to. When you have the opportunity to pray for someone, right there, right now, it's easier not to, isn't it? And it's easier, it's easier to think, I'll pray at home. Or to say, I'll pray for you. And then not. Have you ever said you'll pray for someone and not do it? It's the most common expression in the Christian church, I think. I'll pray for you. But what about, I'll pray for you. Let's, let's do that now. So, so, so seizing it. But, but imagine being strengthened so that the, the, the kind of dial on your back is wound up and you're ready to go and, and, and you're in. It's so much easier when someone says something that creates a little opening for you to share a little bit of faith or a little opening for you to be a little bit vulnerable about yourself, say a little bit about your story. It's so much easier not to. Much easier not to. I'm beginning to spot that at key spiritual moments, I feel unusually tired. Ah, Isn't that interesting? At key spiritual moments, when you just need to push forward a little bit more for breakthrough, you feel unusually tired. Now, I've become to recognize the unusual tiredness, even if it comes from the enemy, as a trigger to keep going. Yeah, and we've got to learn to be alert to what the Spirit's saying. Do you know, sometimes you, perhaps there's a trauma with one of your children during the day and you know in your spirit, when they get to sleep at night, I need to go in, I need to lift off shock and trauma You pray God's peace into that broken part of their world. And I feel awfully tired suddenly, like it's all too much. And I'm glad that you understand what I'm talking about. We need this strength. And maybe one of the great things we can pray for one another, Lord, would you strengthen us like this with, with, with dynamite strength, the power, the word is dunamis, dynamite, with dynamite power. So in those moments when it feels like too much, I go, ha this is the moment to keep going. This is the moment to push through. When it feels like I just can't quite be bothered, this is the moment to absolutely be bothered and breakthroughs not far around the corner. And he prays that they might be strengthened. And he prays that Christ may dwell. Verse 17. Dwell in your hearts through faith. Through, uh, dwell in your hearts, sorry, through faith. Every Christian has Christ by his spirit dwelling within them. Romans 8 makes that very clear. It's a fantastic chapter for Jehovah's Witnesses. Because it doesn't say that in their Bible. And it's a really good place to start when they come to talk to you on the door. Romans chapter 8. So, so what do we mean here? If, if, if every Christian has Christ dwelling in them, 
Well, it's a question of degree. And there are two words that are usually used for, uh, for dwelling. The one is kind of temporary and transient, and the other is permanent and all-fulfilling, all-controlling. No surprises which word Paul uses. I'm praying that Christ may dwell in a permanent, all-filling, all-controlling, all-manifesting way. A controlling influence in our lives. Am I living up to what Jesus would do? It's back to the questions we started with. Am I living up to what God's asking of me at work? Am I living up to what God's asking of me in my street? Am I living up to what God's asking of me in the various places where he's put me? Am I allowing him to control? And it's, it's, it's a fascinating question to ask if you dare. Lord, show me where I'm not living out of that sense of you dwelling fully in my life. I think that we fluffed it last weekend. That's me. Uh, 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 and, uh, because as I reflected on what, what, what would it mean for Jesus to live in our street, I think Jesus would have had a street party last weekend. And we didn't. And I think that was a mistake. And, and you know how, how when you make a mistake, there's always some smart aleck that rubs it in. You know, you know that? And one of the neighbours said, oh, I really wish we'd had a street party. We thought you were going to organise it. <laughs> Gee whiz. Which is kind of a compliment in a way, I suppose, if not a little backhanded slap. But, uh, you know, and you think, well, that's a missed up. Jesus would have done that, I think, in our street. He would have had a stri- anything to get people together, anything to create community to reach out. And some of you in your initial communities did way better than we did, so uh, rock on and congratulations to you. So does Christ fill? You know, wow. He didn't in that moment. We just wanted a break, a bit of downtime. And maybe there was an opportunity that was missed. So am I his hands and his feet? Am I doing the things he did? I tell you the truth, Jesus said. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. What did Jesus do? Anyone who has faith in me will do what what I've been doing. What did Jesus do? Now, we immediately kind of put this into, well, he healed people, and we get into all sidetracked about healing and stuff, and, uh, and, all that. and all that's true, and does God want us to heal people in his name? Absolutely. And should we pray more for people to be healed? Absolutely. And if we prayed more, would we see more people healed? Absolutely. All those things are certainly uh, are true. But let's not miss the overall thrust of what's going on here. Uh, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. What did Jesus do? Gather 12 guys, poured his life into them. That's what Jesus did. He spent half his time doing that. But another half of his time uh, uh, reaching out to people, talking about the kingdom of God, and then demonstrating the kingdom of God with signs and wonders. That's what Jesus did. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. Then he had a particular bent to the last, the lost, and the least. Which is usually we perceive people not like us. So we find that a stretch to say the least. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do greater things than these because I go to the Father. Hugely challenging, isn't it? 
Because the kind of things I'd naturally say are important about my rhythm of life, uh, Jesus didn't spend anything like as much time on those as, as I do. And that's not, not to say those things are wrong, uh, uh, but it, it's just about looking at how, how Jesus is presented, how the Spirit revealed the life of Jesus to us. Uh, and then we hear these amazing things about, you know, you know it, it's time for you to carry this on. To keep going in this vein. To keep going with these sets of values and purposes and so on. And the only way I guess we can do that is to move on to verse 17 and 18. When Paul prays for Christ's love. You've got to be rooted, it says, in Christ's love. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And I pray that being rooted and established in love. A botanical uh, metaphor Rooted, an architectural metaphor, firm foundation, established. Christ's love needs to go deep down within us. What can we say about Christ's love? Well, maybe I alluded to it just a few moments ago. Christ's love was an absolute bent to the last, the lost, and the least, or the least and the lost. That, that was the love that motivated, that compelled him. He always left the comfortable place to go to the risky place. He always left where he was to reach out to those that he perceived needed him the most, or at least would understand their need of him the most. And that's really uncomfortable to love like that. Because we naturally spend our lives protecting ourselves from those we consider to be the last, the least, and the lost. This is a new kind of love. And without that new kind of love, there is no compulsion to reach out. Without that kind of love, we'll settle for where we are. Without that kind of love, there's no reason to keep breaking out of what we know and who we are in order to reach beyond what we already know. You see, what will cause me to reach across my street? What will cause me to reach just across the desk at work? Or across the shop floor? What will cause me to reach across an economic divide or a social divide or a racial divide? Which is why Ephesians 2 has been all about crossing the divides. Because this new community is a community that says we cannot stay as we are. We have to reach beyond the borders of our own understanding beyond the borders of our own sets of relationships. And so uh, Paul prays, I'm longing for them to know how massive, how wide, how deep, how long, how high, how rich is the love of Christ. To know that love. Because unless we know it, we'll never live it. This is totally impossible. Who was it that said Christianity uh, has not been tried and found wanting? It's just never been tried. Come on, who said that? Sorry? Gandhi? I think so. More recently there's someone else as well who's taken up his words. But it, 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 it's, a, it's, it's a challenge. and in, So it's strengthened, wind up, rooted down in this love of Christ, the, the, the controlling presence of Jesus might be at work. Who as soon as the disciples got comfortable said, come on, there's other villages where we need to go. 
And then he prays all this, that we might be filled. That we might be filled. What stops the full measure of God in you today? What stops that? Yeah, go on. Fantastic. And also, for his love, where our love doesn't reach, to ask. And uh, that, that was really something for me to, to realise. I, I don't think I've ever understood, blessed are the, ho- the poor in spirit. But it really came home to me that we, we just need to ask. We are poor in God's Holy Spirit. And we need to ask him to fill us and to fill us with his love for others. Brilliant, thank you. Barbara needs a round of applause for two reasons. Well, at least one. Go on. I was going to say she needs a round of applause for two reasons. One, that she got up there and said something. Isn't that what it's about? Uh, and secondly, because what she said was absolutely brilliant. So it's, it's about this question then. What stops us being, being filled to the full measure? You know, there were people in Jesus' day that we were stopped. The, the, the rich man went away sad. And Jesus just let him go. I find that really challenging. Jesus just let him go because he wasn't in that place. Far too many things stopping him being filled to the measure of the fullness of God. The religious people, all the time, Jesus was letting them go. Nancy, we're on a roll. Wednesday gone at the huddle. Um, I've, for a long time, resisted having um, the the gift of tongues and um, it's silly really but I just couldn't being a linguistic being somebody who speaks many languages um, hearing people pray in tongues to me seemed ridiculous and um, and we prayed for this and God blessed me um, with the gift of tongues and um, I was just amazed by it. But the thing that really um, affirmed it, the next day I was in the cemetery and um, I was doing my mother's flowers. Now the cemetery is an open place, the one along um, Colchester Road. And yes, I had sprayed myself with perfume that morning, but I didn't expect that for a woman to walk past and say to me, I can smell, and she didn't say perfume, she said, I can smell your fragrance from way off and it's beautiful and I said thank you and then I I thought to myself but how can somebody in a a wide open space smell my fragrance and I heard God said to me you are my fragrance so you know we need to accept the Holy Spirit accept the goods accept that they're not ridiculous stop controlling and it's something that I'm still learning to do Simon, unfortunately, my clockwork toy always broke because I always overwound it. I think both of those people need a round of applause just for being brave enough to articulate. I can tell by the applause you're getting nervous in case we suddenly make this compulsory. You know, just go, just go around the room. Uh, no plans for doing that this Sunday. Uh, no, just kidding. So, um, 
so there were things, weren't there, as, as we've heard, that for, for Nancy, it was that sense of wanting to control uh, that made it difficult for her to feel she could be filled. And uh, 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 the, the religious guys, they were full of their religious stuff, and it made it so difficult for them, because it, they, it just so bothered them about, about the rituals and, uh, and stuff related to, to that, their, their way of life, and making sure their way of life became a God to them, rather than the living God. Uh, and there are other things, our, our own sense of control, which can uh, express itself in all kinds of different ways. Uh, but maybe for some of us, it's money. We're scared, witless, that uh, you know, if, if God if God wants a bit more of me, He might ask me to do something with my money, and that's really hard. He might ask me to move house, and that's really hard. He might ask me to to, to do something I really don't want to do, uh, and so we, we we deliberately try and just uh, uh, keep that space locked down. Uh, and I don't know what it is for you this morning. But what is it that stops? Because if you don't know, Jesus knows. And if you're willing to ask, he'll tell you the things that stop you being filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able, the last bit, to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, which is from the word we have dynamite, according to his power that is where? Up there, wifty-wafty, where's his power? Already at work within us. Isn't that really encouraging? No, no, no. Okay. It's already uh, at work within us. Isn't that really encouraging? Uh, uh, To him be the glory, where? In the church, in these sets of relationships, in these people learning to live like family, in these people in their workplaces and neighborhoods, reaching out to, 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 to those uh, around them in a natural way because they've been wound up like clockwork and they, uh, and they can't help themselves in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So, two things for us to do. Um, uh, I want to take you back to where you started and the conversation that you had uh, at the beginning and you talked um, uh, or you, you thought about what, what would it be like for Jesus to live in your street or what would it be like for um, you know, Jesus to do your job and uh, a bit disconcerting, he might do it better than you um, uh, uh, but he might not, but he might not he might not do it better than you uh, but but what's it, what, what's it mean for Jesus to, to be there? So that's the first thing. I want you to go back to that and say, okay, well, what do I need to do? What response do I need to make this morning? Because I need to be Jesus in that place. That's the first thing. And the second thing we'll do uh, just after that is to pray for, for God to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Simon. When I was a young man, <laughs> not very good with technology. When I was a young man, my uh, grandfather... Uh, wrote to me and said that um, I should approach the throne of grace and I I didn't know what he meant by that and it took me about 20 years to discover what he meant by it and what, what he meant was we need to have the courage to step out and to approach Jesus and to put whatever barrier that it is that we have in front of Jesus and ask him to heal it. In my case, it was anger towards my father. He was a chronic alcoholic 
and I held a lot of anger in my heart against him. And through prayer, I and through the help of friends, I approached the throne of grace. And through prayer, I received healing. And I believe that is possible for each one of us. All we need to do is to have the courage to step out and move towards God. I think that's really helpful. Thanks, Simon. I mean, we see so many people uh, uh, in all kinds of different contexts where, 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 where anger or, or bitterness or malice of some kind becomes a barrier to, to allowing God in. And, uh, and the power of letting that go, power of forgiveness, is, is absolutely huge to the release of the, of the Holy Spirit. And I'm grateful for Simon for highlighting that uh, in a brave way this morning because it's so true. Uh, and when God breaks in and at that level of our lives, where part of our lives have been locked in, there's a release like we barely imagined was possible uh, before it took place. It's kind of good staying here. It looks like Penny's preaching, so I can relax. <laughs> it's, all, it's kind of all down to her now. You go, girl. Next point. <laughs> just, just, just fantastic. Okay, just for, just for a minute, pick up those conversations about what Jesus was, what it would mean for Jesus to be where you live or where you work, uh, and then we'll bring it all together and, and, and pray. Go. Just hold those things with each other that you're talking about. And Lord, we're, we're asking, we're praying for each other now in those things that we've just been articulating. We're praying about what it means to be Jesus where you've placed us. Give us eyes to see what it means to be Jesus in my house, in my neighborhood, in my streets, in my close, in my classroom, in my school, in my football team, in my tennis squad. Jesus, what it means to be you where I am, in my work, with my customers, with my colleagues. And you said you'll be my witnesses. Witnesses in Jerusalem, right where we are. Witnesses in Judea, a little bit further out. Witnesses in Samaria where it's hostile and dangerous and to the ends of the earth. Lord, would you raise up just one thing that we can do in response to this morning? Don't overwhelm us with a myriad of things that will be lost by the time we've had our lunch. Just one thing. We ask for one thing to rise up in our consciousness because of what you said this morning. This is what I will do. And we pray now that you'd awaken in us uh, uh, anything that stops us this morning being filled to the measure. Through what people have shared uh, this morning with us, sharing their heart about a poverty of spirit or controlling or, or anger or bitterness or a sense of just being striving, of being overwhelmed. Lord, all, all those things come in the way and, and become 
barriers to the freedom of your spirit, Lord. Maybe God's just raising something in your consciousness. And as Simon so helpfully put it some moments ago, the opportunity is just to bring it, to give it to Jesus, just to place it in front of the cross for his blood to cleanse it, to forgive, to heal, to restore. If you're wanting to offer something to Jesus in these moments, I'm just going to invite you to stand where you are and then we'll pray. Lord, thank you that you know why we stand. You know why we stand. And that information is perfectly safe with you. And you're loving and gracious and kind. And so we're placing at the foot of your cross this morning that which stops me being full today. I lay down pride, lay down a sin, a habit, a wrong action or thought. I lay down anger or malice or bitterness or resentment. All the things Paul will go on to talk about in this very letter. I lay down my relationships, my finances, my fears my dreams, my hopes. Invite you by the Spirit's enabling to see the cross covering those things that you bring to him now. Thank you, Jesus, for your cross. Thank you for your cross. Thank you that we can come as we are but we leave totally changed. And so, Lord, now we're asking for uh, that that filling of your Holy Spirit. Maybe I invite you all to stand. And uh, he gloriously works within our faith. He will fill you as much as you want. He'll fill you as much as you want. So, Lord, we invite you. Uh, You've promised the Holy Spirit. You've promised... Uh, that strengthening, you've promised that love, you've promised that indwelling, you've promised us that we can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So we choose in these quiet moments to adopt a posture of receiving and invite you to fill us as much as we dare. 
Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.